Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in you we have so much to be thankful for. In studying your word, we find nourishment. In prayer, we find refreshment as your thoughts shape our thoughts. In the fellowship of our church family, we find you at work, making us more like you. In Sabbath, we find assurance that you provide. You are enough, and you reign over all creation. So we ask that your reign would increase. Just as your will is done completely and fully in your dwelling place, let it be so here on earth. Let your will be done in our lives as we set out to be used by you to proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of your Son to all the nations. We pray that our lives would resemble Christ's more and more each day as we imitate his sacrificial love. Lord, we love you more than our lives. And if there's any area that this isn't true, then reveal it to us so we can change it. Let your will be done in our relationships. Use our words to build each other up. Give us joyful hearts since we represent you to one another and to the world. Help us to take this very seriously. Lord, we are brokenhearted over the continued suffering caused by COVID-19. As more and more people are affected by it physically and more and more are affected mentally and emotionally by the distancing and more and more are affected economically, we ask you to bring an end to all of it. We pray that you would give wisdom to all who are entrusted with leadership or authority. Give them first a great love for you and then for the people entrusted to them. From that, from that, let wisdom flow. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Ryan. Good morning, everyone. I'm filling in for Hans, and he's still recovering from his surgery. So, yeah, I hope that we can uh, glean from the word today, even though I can't see you. <laughs> uh, so, let me begin. Over the years... Our society has celebrated many famous deaths. Out of curiosity, I did a Google search for who is the most famous death. I wanted to see what the world honors about those who have died. So the first link was to Wikipedia, the all-knowing, uh, referencing Forbes' list of the world's highest paid dead celebrities. They have been posting since 2001, and there are two names that have been at the top consistently. Elvis Presley he was in the top five every year and was number one for a number of years. And since his death in 2009, 2009 Michael Jackson has been at the top of the list and currently is the highest paid dead celebrity. Both have been earning millions of dollars every year, even though they are dead. What does this say about our society? I think it gives an indicator of what we think is success and who has influenced us enough to pay money to continue honoring. Now, I don't discredit that they both had talent as artists, but it does reveal that money and fame are idols. It reveals that we desire to be above and over other people. Yet those idols are meaningless as death forces us to process what we truly value. 
And when faced with your end, you may still hold on to those idols. Or you may consider, was this it? Is there something beyond this life? For the Christian, death links us to a primary foundation of our faith. We know sin leads to death. We know Christ sacrificially died. He died in our place. We know Christ defeated death by resurrecting. And so I want us to consider in depth what does the death and burial of Christ implicate for us. In Mark, we're going to see the witness of the burial of Christ compel us to decide who Christ is. And if Christ actually did what he did, then we are recipients of grace called to die as he died. So let's begin with this first point. The death, burial, and resurrection happened. The death, burial, and resurrection happened. It may seem silly or obvious to say this, yet if we never say it, do we believe it? We have been in Mark, who has been posing this question of who is Christ. We have been given a written testimony, and we are coming to a place where it's very real. This Jesus isn't like the other religious leaders. He made claims about the kingdom of God. He made the claim that he is the son of God and the Messiah. Now, if he didn't die, if he didn't, wasn't buried, and he didn't resurrect, that could negate his claims to be the son of God, to be Messiah. Let's read our text for today and look more closely at the implications of his burial. Let's turn to Mark 15, starting in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Yosias and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were, many, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone, back, stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark is presenting witnesses, and among them are women. 
See, women were the witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrected Jesus. The 11 disciples were nowhere to be found at the burial in the gospel accounts. And what is interesting about Mark's testimony of these women is that women were very, viewed very low in regards to social status. It was not accepted to use women as legal witnesses in a court. Yet these women were the primary witnesses of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They were honored by the church despite a society that would rather ignore them. Now, their social status actually strengthens their witness because if you were already despised in society, why would you want to state your witness that Jesus is Christ, the one who was publicly executed as a criminal and risk further despisal? The most probable explanation is that they spoke the truth of their witness that Jesus is the Christ. These women took courage to be witnesses and to take part in the burial of Jesus. So why is the burial that important, you may think? Well, consider, if the burial didn't happen, it opens up many theories of what happened to the body of Christ and could cause doubt on the resurrection. And over the years, there have been theories to discredit the burial of Jesus. And I want to briefly go over three and explain why the witness of the burial and empty tomb is true. One theory is that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. So here's some thoughts to consider. The disciples were broken and fearful ever since Christ was taken in the garden and crucified. They hid. They hid from the religious leaders in fear. Peter denied he followed Jesus at his trial. They just saw their leader executed and knew if they tried anything, they too could be executed. They were not learned men who used this opportunity to gain power. And over the course of time, many of them did endure extreme suffering and even execution for following Christ. But that was after seeing the resurrected Christ. To think that they would have stolen the body and died for a lie is highly unlikely, especially since there was no apparent gain for them individually. Also, the Jewish, Jewish leaders requested to have a guard at the tomb as stated in Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. Let me read. The next day... That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, it's doubtful that the disciples would have had the motivation or resources to overtake a guard without it becoming known to the religious leaders. Therefore, 
there isn't significant evidence to support that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Another theory is that Jesus appeared to die but recovered. We just went through what Christ endured from torture to death. These alone point to the fact that no one could have survived that. In John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And even that wound alone would be difficult to recover from. Some argue the scientific conclusion of the blood and water coming out of Jesus indicates a heart attack that led to a cardiac rupture. His heart literally burst. Even with today's medical advances, it would be very unlikely to survive this if given immediate care. We also read in our text today that the Romans certified Jesus' death when Pontius Pilate asked for the centurion to confirm before giving the body to Joseph. And so even if Jesus survived this, the disciples might have helped him medically, but would they have seen him as Lord? No, they would have realized he was just a man who claimed to be a false messiah, a fraud. Now again, there's no evidence that supports that Jesus died and then recovered. The last theory we will look at is that they had the wrong tomb. I know in today's world, without Google Maps, I would be lost all the time. So... This theory did not really take hold very long. Uh, partly, the women knew where the tomb was. We just read that. They witnessed the burial of Jesus and came back with the intent to anoint the body. And if the women had gone to the wrong tomb, there are too many other parties who would have revealed that error, such as Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin and the presumed owner of the tomb. There were also guards ordered to be at, at the tomb. So they would have revealed that error. The Romans and the Jewish leaders would have gladly produced the body to stop the Christian movement. In fact, in Matthew 28, 11 to 15, I'll just read real quick. There's a statement that um, the Jewish leaders paid off the soldiers to propagate the first theory that the body of Jesus was stolen. So logically, this means they believed, the religious leaders believed that Jesus was dead and the tomb was empty. That was Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Again, there is no evidence to support that all the parties involved had the wrong tomb. So we're presented with a very strong witness that Jesus died and was buried. And as we will see in the Gospel of Mark next week, Jesus also resurrected. So now we are faced with an implication of this testimony. If Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection did happen, then we need to follow everything Jesus Christ commanded. If we don't believe this, 
then we have to ignore the Bible and live however we want because Jesus is not Lord and King. But if we do, if we do believe this, then Jesus is Lord. He is King. And it's wise to obey him no matter the cost. Realize, brothers and sisters, that to obey him is a response to what he did. Which brings us to my next point. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. This statement may be well known to us. But I want to explore in the text the depth to which that grace extends. Those who gave witness of Jesus in this text are all in the same plane despite social status. All are sinners, though they all have different backgrounds. So let's look at those in this text that have shown a receptive response to Christ in the midst of his death and burial. First, we have the centurion who called Jesus the Son of God back in verse 39. He was a Gentile, an outsider in regards to the Jewish religion, the Jewish culture, and the Jewish politics. To many of the Jews, he was considered an enemy. Yet he witnesses the death of Christ. As Tyler shared last week, this outsider proclaimed Jesus must be the Son of God. And in these words, he put Jesus above Caesar. He was considered a son of the gods to rule over the people as part of the imperial cult of Rome. Next, we note the women who were with Jesus the entire time during his ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. Women during his time were outsiders because of gender. It was a patriarchal society where men had the social, legal, and economic power. A woman had to depend upon a man to increase their standing, typically through supporting their husband and bearing children in motherhood. And even though these women were considered a lower status, they are witnesses to Jesus in all four gospel accounts. And they recognized Jesus was more than a man. They would testify that he is Christ. Finally, we'll address those that were of social status. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, as we'll see. Both were members of the Sanhedrin Council. And in Mark, we see Joseph ask Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus in order to give him a proper burial. We gain more insight into both of these men in John, chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier had come by, uh, to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the cu burial custom of the Jews. Now, 
in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We see that Joseph was a secret disciple. He was an insider socially, but feared being cast out because of associating with Jesus. Both Joseph and Nicodemus were wealthy as they were providing a new tomb and significant amount of spices. Though at this point, they did not publicly proclaim Jesus was Christ, but they did take this action to honor Jesus. I believe our text reveals Joseph's motive as it said he was looking for the kingdom of God. What do these different characters reveal to us? It reveals that no amount of status or lack thereof matters to God. No amount of wealth or good works can pay off the debt of sin that is required by God. No amount of poverty or social outcast can keep you from Christ. At this point, none of them truly knew what would happen the next few days. But even in the death and burial of Jesus, they bore witness of his unjust and brutal death. They also gave him honor when the rest of the people rejected Jesus as a Messiah or hid in fear like the 11 disciples did. There was a commonality between those who stood by Jesus even in his burial, this perceived defeat. They were all looking for the kingdom of God that Jesus preached to them. We should be able to identify with at least one of these characters, even if it is only in their social standing as an outsider or insider, rich or poor, pious or sinner. But it goes deeper than this. Again, Mark has been pressing us to answer, who do you say that Jesus is? In looking at the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and understanding the witness of the centurion, the women, Joseph, and Nicodemus, we are posed with the question, are you seeking the kingdom of God? And if you are seeking the kingdom of God, I hope you can find assurance in your participation in the church today, hearing the word. I hope that you've been realizing the importance of the written word of God to gain understanding. I hope that you have been taking seriously the commands of Christ to love even your enemy. I hope that you are seeing growth in your life because of the work of Christ. Remember, friends, the salvation that Jesus paid for with his very life is given because he was gracious to give it. And hope that each of you will take a moment today to reflect on this costly gift of salvation. The salvation, this forgiveness of our sin is an invitation to follow Christ that is offered to all. Social status doesn't matter. Wealth or poverty 
don't matter. And whether you have lived a pious life or have been down in the deepest darkness of sin, it doesn't matter. None of these keep you from the gospel message of salvation in Christ. The only thing that keeps you from it is your rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The centurion, the woman, Joseph and Nicodemus, each showed they witnessed something about Jesus. For the centurion, it was to recognize that this man who was executed was greater than the Caesar he served. For the women, they recognized Jesus practiced what he preached and were determined to give him honor. For Joseph and Nicodemus, it was time to take a step of courage and reveal that they were followers of Jesus, willing to be identified in his burial. A few days later, the resurrection of Jesus would reveal to these followers that Jesus truly is Messiah. He would change their lives from how they perceived God to how they are to live for God. It would cause them to realize that everything Jesus preached about the kingdom of God was true. And this leads me to ask us a couple questions that need serious consideration. Was what Jesus preached about the kingdom of God true? Was what what Jesus preached about the kingdom of God true? And if so, is it worth taking courage to lay down our life and follow Christ? Is it worth taking courage to lay down our life and follow Christ? The simple answer is yes and yes. But consider the costs. Yes, Jesus paid the debt we could not pay, but there is a cost to following Christ. Which brings us to our final point. Recipients of grace die to self for the gain of Christ. Recipients of grace die to self for the gain of Christ. In contemplating this dying to self, I was reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a theologian, a pastor, a spy, a conspirator to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was executed at 39 years old on April 9th, 1945. He was a man that very much fought for the true church to survive the Nazi regime that was determined to pervert and destroy the Christian faith. I bring up Bonhoeffer because the quote I'm about to read very much relates to our study of the death and burial of Christ. This is from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our 
over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. There are a couple points that Bonhoeffer makes here that I want to focus on. First, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We must realize that Christ did not call us to have your best life now. In fact, it is to die to our selfish pursuits in order to make Christ our highest pursuit. It may look different for each of us. It may change in the season we are in. And back in our text, for the centurion, it was recognizing that there was someone greater than his earthly king. For the woman, it was staying with Jesus even through his burial, though in the moment there was great uncertainty of who Jesus was. For Joseph and Nicodemus, it was time to take courage and give honor to Jesus in his burial, even though their status could be taken away if the Sanhedrin found out. And even in their participation in the burial, they were humbling themselves, as typically the women were the ones who took care of the burial duties. We each must recognize what must be given up as we respond to the call of Christ to follow. The second thing that Bonhoeffer brought up is the cross is not the terrible end, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. There is a great gain in having communion with Christ. It's not an earthly gain. In fact, Christ will ultimately lead to earthly loss. The gain I speak of is best described in Scripture. So I'm going to read three out of hundreds of verses we could go through. Let's start with Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now we've gone over this verse many times, so I'm not going to go very deep with this, but it speaks to our gain in a relationship with the Lord that's built on his steadfast love and his justice. What greater gain to be in a relationship with one who is unshakable, 
one who is eternally faithful. That is great gain. Next we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquired possession of it, to the praise of his glory." Again, there's a lot here. So I'm going to keep it simple and short. And you can look up our previous teachings on Ephesians. But to sum up our gain in Christ, it's to know that there is an eternal unity, an eternal security as adopted children that is only found in Christ. Again, that is great gain. Finally, let's read John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. This is Jesus speaking. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In this third verse, I want us to understand that the love of Christ brings us to a deeper fellowship to love each other as fellow disciples. So we not only gain an eternal relationship with Christ, but we gain everyone that also chooses Christ. No amount of money or power could replace this. And I hope this encourages us to see there is great gain in Christ. Now I have a final question for us to ponder. How will I lose my life for Christ because he is worthy? How will I lose my life for Christ because he is worthy? To consider this question, let's look at the verses that Sam read earlier to us. In Mark chapter 8, 
verses 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this is not me asking you this question. It is Christ asking. Remember, he is the one calling you to come and die. There is a cost to follow Christ. We are living in a culture that has a social cost to proclaim Christ as Lord. This has occurred in part because Christianity in America has been perverted with hypocrisy when we act just like the world or act higher than thou. It has led the church in general to lose sight of the fundamentals of who Christ is and who we are called to be. Another cause to the social costs is that despite our failing as the church in whole, people are still offended by Christ. People are still offended by Christ. They are offended when in the name of Christ we fight for justice that exposes the world's sin. They are offended when we declare that there's only one way to reconcile with God, and that is through Christ. Through his death and resurrection. We all have a social cost to pay in following Christ. But that is not the only cost. There are other costs that you and I will have to navigate in how we use our time, our talent, our treasure. Maybe it's carving time to be in the Word. Maybe it's being the one to initiate loving those around you instead of waiting for it to happen. Maybe it's giving monetarily to the church where you have not. Maybe it's acknowledging your sin and realizing you need to repent to Christ. Maybe it's seeking support from your brothers and sisters when life feels like it's overcoming you. Maybe it's being the one to give time and energy to someone in need. Maybe it's standing for Christ at the expense of your reputation. Maybe it's doing the work to reconcile with someone. How will I lose my life for Christ? How 
will I lose my life for Christ? There are many choices we each will need to make in this life. We need to realize that those Christ-honoring choices will lead us to die to self and gain Christ. And they will also hold our proclamation that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Jesus Christ is worth it. We know, we know this as we have looked at the account of the burial of Jesus. We have been given testimony that the death, burial, and resurrection happened. And we are compelled to do something with this truth. We are compelled to continue the testimony of declaring Jesus is the Christ and he is the Lord. We are compelled because he brought salvation to all by his grace. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew, a Gentile, a king, or a prostitute. The gospel overcomes these divides. Because the only divide that matters to God is the one that is between you and God. Even though the invitation was to everyone, only those that answer the call to die to self and live for Christ receive that salvation and find that there is no longer separation due to sin. And in this, we begin to experience the communion with Christ, the gain of our inheritance. And in Christ, we understand how the eternal love of Christ transforms us into a new creation. So I plead with you to decide that Christ is worthy to die for. Take courage to take a step of death that gains Christ.